All right, go ahead, take your Bibles out. We're gonna be in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As you know, we've been going verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians. We took a break last week just for Easter, but one of the reasons we study verse by verse is because we, we, we don't wanna miss anything. We wanna go through every little thing and really not only not miss anything, but we wanna understand Paul's flow of argument. This is a letter. 1 Corinthians was a letter handwritten letter that a man named the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he loved dearly. And when you write a letter, you don't just, you know, if I wrote a five-page letter to my wife and she only read one little paragraph, she'd miss the whole flow of argumentation of what, what I was trying to communicate to her. I wanted to read the whole thing in order. And so that's what we do in this church. We preach through books of the Bible in order to understand the whole thought here. One thing I've grown to take much appreciation in in this church family is exactly what you just seen. Uh, I love the way this church loves people. It's extraordinary, and it challenges me. Uh, oftentimes, I, I, I mistakenly put the burden on my shoulders thinking I have to be the chief everything in this church as the pastor, and, and that's just not true, but I, I, I make that foolish mistake at times, and this is an area where I am not the chief. Uh, this is an area where the, the church body, Park Community Church South Loop, has loved extraordinarily, and I oftentimes get... A, uh, a glimpse into the way you guys are loving each other and loving the city that's really special for me as, uh, as part of the leadership team to see what you guys are doing, how the Spirit's moving through you. Some of you have taken children into your homes and served as mom and dad. What kind of love? It's incredible. Some of you have shown up in the most difficult moments of marriages to just sit in the pain of it all. Watch kids, babysit kids when things seem to be falling apart. Some of you have taken people into your homes. Let them live with you. They need a place to live. Open your homes. Let them live with you. It's not your home, it's the Lord's. I've watched you guys do this. Some of you have organized meal trains for those in the hospital, visited those in the hospital, just sat with people as they're recovering, as they're struggling with illnesses, prayed with people powerfully. I've seen this. Some of you have organized groups to go clean up apartments and, and, how, and, and fill apartments with furniture. I mean, this is special. This is the work of the church. You've cooked meals. You've opened your homes. Uh, it's very easy for me to say as the pastor of this church, where this is a church where biblical love is put to action regularly. Um, as it turns out, opportunities to love others the way God has uh, prescribed Christians ought to live, opportunities to love others are all over the place. It happens every day in a thousand different ways. In fact, every interaction that a Christian has with another human is an opportunity to put biblical love into practice. Every elevator, every escalator, every walking through a door, every time you walk into, your, into a meal with your colleagues or get into a car with someone, get into an Uber ride, every moment of your day has these opportunities to put this deep ethic of biblical love into practice. And it's one thing to talk about being missionaries and sending our missionaries overseas, and that's one thing we do very well. We have many missionaries that have been sent to some of the most difficult countries in the entire world to go share the gospel. But also, every single follower of Jesus is to called to live missionally, and one of the key ways that we live missionally is by executing biblical love on a day-to-day -day basis in a thousand little ways in every circumstance. And by doing that, what, what the scriptures say is that we're spreading the fragrant aroma of Christ among the nations. I love that language. 
Now, part of spreading the fragrant aroma of Christ is sharing the gospel of Jesus, being clear with our mouth, and we must do that well, and you get many, many sermons from me on how to do that well, and hopefully you are equipped as a church to do that well, but also the simple little steps we take to love people spreads the fragrant aroma of Christ. We come today to one of the most famous passages in the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. One of the reasons it's so famous is because this is the classic wedding passage. Love is patient. Love is kind, and so on. And uh, as I've been preparing for uh, this week, I have just been overwhelmed once again by the beauty of this passage. There's a reason God has permitted this to be one of those chapters from the scripture that is read so often. Even non-believers will take this passage and have it read at their wedding. Isn't that interesting? It's so powerful that even those who don't believe in Jesus and don't want anything to do with the context of where this passage finds itself in, they'll take this passage and they'll recognize there's something here that needs to be read over the most important day of my life, my wedding. Mm. I've been overwhelmed this week as I've been preparing for this because the deeper I get into it, the more I just realize no man is fit to preach this text. It preaches itself. It's beautiful. A little context for us. We're going through 1 Corinthians, and we're in this kind of three, four chapter slice of 1 Corinthians where Paul is dealing with a very specific issue. The issue is that there's an abuse of spiritual gifts taking place. Okay, now we, we've already dug into this, and next week and the week after, we dig even deeper into spiritual gifts. But what was happening was in the early church, God's spiritual gifts, that's particular anointings that God gives to different people. Some people are gifted to teach. Some are gifted with wisdom. Some are gifted with administration skills. Some are gifted with the gift of prophecy. And these different gifts were spread out among the church, and some people were incorrectly thinking that their gift made them more important in the life of the church. Their particular gifting or their particular degree of gifting that God gave them kind of put them up on a pedestal and there was a sense of elitism taking place in the church and certain people were thought of as less than, others were thought of as more than and basically the church looked like everybody else in the world, right? What gifts do you have? That's how successful you are. That's how prominent you are in the eyes of the world and Paul cut through that and said, no, you've got got it wrong. If you bring elitism into the church, you're not the church. You're totally failing at what the call is. And so he's working through this argument, and then he gets to 1 Corinthians 13. And it's right in the middle of this argument. And oftentimes we look at 1 Corinthians 13, this beautiful chapter on love, and we look at it in isolation, thinking this is just Paul's discourse on love. But what he's doing is he's correcting the mistake. The mistake was, you are how gifted you are. And think of, think of the best Christians as those with the, the most bold and prominent giftings. And Paul's going to get after him today. He said, you, you want to know, know what Christians look like? Watch the way they love other people. Put the gifts aside. Let's look at the love oozing out of that person. That's how you measure a Christian. What I'm going to try to do today is kind of uh, break out and expose and help us to look into the details of this chapter on love. I'm going to do it under three different approaches. It's broken up into kind of three different sections. First, we're going to look at the necessity of biblical love, the necessity of biblical love, then the character of biblical love, and lastly, the supremacy of biblical love, the necessity, the character, and the supremacy of biblical love. Let's start in verses one to three. Actually, I want to read the whole passage to us so you can hear the whole thing. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Verses one to three begins with the necessity of biblical love. And you might put it really simply this way. The great mark of a mature Christian is their Christ-like love. The great mark of a mature Christian is their Christ-like love. As it turns out, this is part of how we measure each other, right? It's, it's not how well do you know the doctrine of justification by faith. There's a mature Christian. It's not how well do we know the doctrine of double imputation. There's a mature Christian. The way that Christ has built this thing is that you want to look at maturity, you want to look at a person who's walking deeply with Jesus, look at the way they're loving people like Christ loved people. Paul, in this section, he's making a really uh, simple case that Christians ought to emulate Jesus. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be living a whole lot like Jesus. When people look in on your life, they ought to see a little glimpse of the way Jesus lived his life. He was passionately loving people. Others outside of the church, they ought to never look at a Christian and think, man, like, like, he's just rude. <laughs> they ought to never look at a Christian and think, man, he, he just harbors resent against me. He doesn't get over the problems that we've had in the past. Christians, if anybody on the planet ought to get these things right, it's Christians who have been shown so much, so much love ourselves by Jesus Christ. Paul gives four specific examples. His first example is, he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, Right? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. As someone who has three children with little toys in the house that are constantly making clutterful noises in the house, I know what this is like to just have background noise. And he says, look, if you're the most eloquent speaker there is, someone that people put up and they say, now there's someone that must know Jesus real deeply but you don't have love, you're nothing more than a little toy truck running around making a whole lot of noise, filling up the noise, the house with noise. That's it. People oftentimes wonder, what does he mean when he talks about the tongues of men and of angels? Some people think that when he speaks about the, the, the tongues of angels, that he's speaking about a spiritual gift of speaking in a heavenly language. And other people say, and actually I would lean the other side on this, I, I think this is actually kind of more metaphor. It's saying speaking the tongues of angels, speaking powerfully and beautifully, as if, as if heavenly itself. And the reason I think it's metaphor is because later on, he uses another metaphor, to have faith so as to remove mountains. 
That's metaphor language, right? And I think that's the idea here. You're saying, saying you're looking at the gifts of people. Remember the context. They were looking at particular gifts in the church and thinking, now those are the real Christians. And he says, yeah, but if, if, if those people, they're not loving like Christ loved people, it's just a noisy gong. It's a clanging symbol. Secondly, third example, he says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. So prophetic powers and wisdom and faith, what is this? We've talked about some of these gifts. We talked about the gift of wisdom. What, what is wisdom? The, gift, the ability to look at the word of God and then see hardship in someone's life and the ability to take the word of God and apply it in direct, actionable ways to live in a person's life. That's wisdom. It's applying the word of God. Wisdom is not just being smart. It's applying God's ways into a person's life. He says, you might be the most wise. Maybe God has gifted you with the gift of wisdom. People will seek you out for wisdom. And that's not wrong. It's not wrong. It's actually a good thing to put the gift of wisdom into practice. But did you know the gift of wisdom can quickly puff your head up because you become someone who's sought after? How about the gift of prophecy? The gift to, to be able to speak direct insights from God into a person's life, into a situation. Wow. People will seek you out if you got that gift. And all of a sudden, your life becomes about exercising a gifting that you've been stewarded by God rather than loving people boldly. And, and, and honestly, when you begin to think of how mature you are in your faith, the maturity oftentimes is measured in our own hearts in terms of how many people are seeking me out for my gifting. We do, I do this, right? We all do this. Rather than, am I pouring myself out in sacrificial Christ-like ways? And Paul's saying, if all you are is a gift, you're a shell. That, that's, just, that's just the outer veneer. The substance is the way you're loving people. His fourth example, I haven't been able to get over this one this week. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Let that one sink in for a second. Throughout history and around our world, even today, those who have delivered their bodies to be burned for the sake of Jesus have always been considered the most courageous. The church has always been persecuted. And around the globe today, we don't understand persecution in, in Chicago, but many around the globe know what this is like to deliver your body to be burned for the sake of Christ. These are actual threats on their life. And throughout church history, folks have been burned at the stake. They've been fed to lions. They've been ripped limb from limb, crucified upside down, thrown from cliffs. They've been crushed by machinery. They've been drowned. They've been decapitated. This is the cost of following Jesus. Now, here's the thing. It's possible to have an incredible gift of courage. And, and you've, you've, it's possible, Paul says, to be, to be the courageous one, to be the one out front, to such a degree that everyone else knows you're courageous, so much so that you are willing to deliver your body to the most painful death humans have created to torture people, being burned alive for the sake of Christ. And to be doing it simply because you have the gift of courage and you know that other people will think highly of you. <laughs> Isn't that insightful how far, how far humans can fall? And Paul says, I can deliver myself to be burned. I can give everything I have away. But if I don't have love, I gain nothing. 
I think Paul's exposing a fault line in modern day Christianity. And it's interesting because obviously he's exposing a fault line in first century uh, Christianity as well. Humans haven't changed all that much in terms of the things that, that drive us, our core motivators. We are easily driven, both individually and collectively. Let me work through that. Individually, we're easily driven by, by how people are gonna think about us, and oftentimes we measure ourselves by how others are thinking about us. And the easiest way for others to think highly of you is for you to have some public way that is some public expression of yourself that's better or more significant than others, right? You have a gift of teaching. You have a gift of knowledge. You're very smart, right? You know things, right? That's very easily confusable for being a mature Christian. Those fault lines have not changed. And if you look collectively, honestly, oftentimes the way we measure, uh, like what is a healthy church, is how many seats are they putting out? I've been, at, I've been at, literally, I've been at pastor's conferences where there's church growth tools of you know, how to get more butts in the seats is the, is the, is the code word they use, right? <laughs> Sorry, pastor just said that word, right? How, how do you get more people in the seats, right? And, and it's easy. Here's what I've learned. It's easy to fill a room two times this size. Not easy, but it, it's possible to fill a room with people two times this size and to then suddenly begin thinking as church leadership, we got this thing. We're, we're, we are the mark of mature Christians right here. Why? Why? Because you got a couple of gifts that are put to use and people are flocking to see them put to use? Show me the love. Show me the love, says Paul. Show me you living like Jesus outside the church on Sunday and that's the mark of a healthy church. See, we get this all wrong and actually we, even, the, even the celebrity Christians that we idolize in our celebrity day and age, oftentimes the reason we idolize them has nothing to do with how they are in their personal life. And then we're all confused when they fall. Because <laughs> no one ever looked behind the curtain to see, are they just a really good preaching gift or is there any love coming out of them? All of a sudden, they're our heroes. We make the same mistake. Paul, Paul's asking us to major on the majors. And the major is love. That, that's the major. We don't want to take the minors and major on those and make it just all about what we know or what the gifts are. Here's where we're going we're gonna to first lay a ground. We're going to build a foundation for a church. We got to get the teaching right. We got to make sure we're not teaching heretically. We got to make sure we're building strong. But then we got to go and we got to love people the way Christ loved. And that's how we're going to measure this thing. And so when I bring Allie and Drew up here and I say, hey, there's this amazing opportunity we have to demonstrate love to the city of Chicago, to some of the most vulnerable and needy in our city, those who have been cast out of homes, who have been cast out of all other kinds of programs and organizations, who literally need some help. And, 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 when, and if in our hearts we say, that sounds like work for somebody else, but not for me. And then you look around and you think, is there anywhere where there's that kind of sacrificial love happening in your life? And you think, no, but, but you know what? I know a lot about the Bible. <laughs> we've got it wrong. And modern day Christianity has gotten this wrong. And I suspect that many in this room have gotten it, it wrong as well. It's interesting. God will oftentimes use us in our mistakes, won't he? You know, there, there are some amazing, huge churches um, that have grown extraordinarily under heretical teaching today. That's a possible thing. It, it has happened. And, and out of God's mercy, out of God's mercy, he will still use even broken churches to bring about sanctification in people's lives. 
I can point out any number of teachers that I would say are false teachers. And even under their false teachings, God's, God's mercy is so amazing that sometimes enough of the Bible gets out that people actually grow underneath their false teachings. Now here's the thing, that doesn't mean that they're right any more than it means that we're right when we get off course a little bit. It could be that God's still using you in your gifting. This is, this is so deceitful, right? It could be that you have a particular gifting and God's even using it right now. And you're, you're seeing that and you're thinking, man, God's using my gifting. I must be good. I must be, I, I must be maturing. And in a certain way, yes, but if that's it, don't confuse God's mercy for still using you in your gifting for actually maturing as a Christian. Maturity is Christ-like love flowing through you. That's where we're gonna measure ourselves. First, the necessity of biblical love. We must have biblical love. Secondly, the character of biblical love. The character of biblical love. The character of biblical love is anchored in the cross. Okay? The character of biblical love is anchored in the cross. We're talking about a term, love, that is uh, very, very confused in our modern day and age. Right? If you were to go and interview 10 different people, actually I had a whole section of this sermon I cut out yesterday, uh, where I actually... I had looked up 10 different definitions that the non-believing world had of what love is, and they're all contradictory to each other. If you were to interview 10 different people on the street, what is love? What, what does it mean? We, we all agree this exists. This is an ethic that's filled the world. Only the most staunch atheists, most staunch atheist materialists would say that love is not actually real, right? But, but most people on this planet would say love is an actual ethic. There's something to it. How do we define it? And if you were to just look at our own country, our own city, we're very confused on this. You've all heard the slogan, love is love, right? That's not a conf- We've all heard that at this point. We've seen the posters for it. Well, wh- what is it? What does the term mean, right? And oftentimes when you look at what, what that means and they start to define it, the different definitions they pose are contradictory to each other, Right? As long as you love a person, it, it's, it's fine. Well, is, is it love when a father walks out on his children and his wife who he's covenanted to in marriage because he just started to love a new woman? If you, have to, if you ask culture, yes. Why? Because love is love. Love, love, is, love is an attraction. It's an emotion, right? And, and so then when you push on culture around us and you say, no, define it for me. Put some boundaries on this because certainly everything can't be love. Right? We, we've got to think logically about this. Everything can't just fit underneath the banner of love. We've got to have boundaries. Boundaries are not necessarily celebrated in our day. Let's hear how the Bible describes this. Now, 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 this is not the ultimate definition. The Bible has a lot more to say about love than just this. But let's listen to how this passage describes love. The character of biblical love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Fifteen different descriptors of love. Everyone is a verb. A verb is an action word. It's something that you do towards another person. None of these words are static. Even if our English translation translates it as a static word, like an, like an adjective, right, something that just describes, it's not. Every single word is a verb. It's moving towards somebody. So, Biblical love moves towards somebody. It's not static, right? A man who is a static, lazy, unprepared to interact with others in any sacrificial way cannot be someone who understands what love is, right? You can't be lazy about this. Biblical love, Christians filled by the Holy Spirit, move towards others in sacrificial, cross-shaped 
ways. Let's go through some of these. We won't get to every single one, but let's consider them. Love is patient and kind. This is not rocket science, right? My children are memorizing this passage right now, and I think they understand it, okay? Love is patient and kind. Love is patient. What does that mean? Well, for love to be patient means that the other person that you have to move towards is doing something that's irking you in some way, <laughs> okay? Otherwise, it wouldn't be patient. Patience means you're having patience with somebody. You're, you're extending to them grace to, to, to be making mistakes in your presence, to, to be harming you even, to be thinking ill of you, to be going about things in the wrong way or the way you wouldn't go about it if you were in their situation, at least you think, right? Love is patient. Why is love patient? Well, well how much patience has Christ had with us? See, 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 all of these descriptors, they're cross-centered. It starts with understanding who Christ is. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. What's envy and boast? Envy and boast is rooted in the ego, right? You read the great saints. You read guys like John Calvin of the past. You read Martin Luther. You read some of these incredible reformers. And the, and the number one term they came back to over and over again, it's amazing because these guys, they, they were kings of the world for a short period of time in terms of the eyes of men. I mean, these were guys that moved and shaked the world in such a way that we still talk about them and we still read their stuff today. But you know what their number one ethic they always talked about was? It was love and humility. Love and humility. Remove the ego from yourself. Love does not envy or boast, right? It doesn't prop others up and think, I wish I was more like them, right? It doesn't see what others have and think, I wish I was, no, why not? Well, because... Because in your own heart, you're, you're content and confident in who Christ has made you. And now that love of who, the confidence in Christ you have is moving towards others and it's changing them. It does, not, it does not boast. We're so tricky with ourselves. We lie to ourselves all the time about how boastful we are. We find little ways to boast and put our best foot in such a way that others can see us. We do it. I do it. We, we, we find we find those little moments, and if you're honest with yourself and take a moment of confession, we, we, we want to put our best foot forward. This is why our Facebook posts only show the best portion of our life and not the worst. Why is that, right? That's something as simple as that. Why is it? Because we want to boast. We want people to see us for the very best of who we are and not for actually who we are. Right? There's much more to us than just what the post reveals. There's much more to us than just what the version of people get. And, and what is that doing? It's when we're boasting about who we are, we're not being honest of the weaknesses we have before a holy God and the grace that we live by daily. Ooh. See, if Christians understood this, there's an authenticity that comes out in your life. Love is not arrogant or rude and does not insist on its own way. See, love is capable of compromise on compromisable issues. Love is not capable of compromise on true doctrine. We stand firm with courage and we don't bend one inch when it comes to true doctrine, not an inch. However, however, on the compromisable issues and, and what we prefer, love is very willing to bend. Love is very willing to, to have things done in a way that you would prefer them not be done. Why? Well, because God's got a whole lot of people that think differently and have different upbringings and different ways they see the world. And, and when you come and you wanna love people, you want to love somebody? Look at somebody who you're trying to get something done together with them and you'd rather done one way and say, I think your way is better. Let's go with your way. It doesn't insist on its own way. Now, now the, 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 the truth is, that's actually very hard for us. 
If you think of the simplest example of that, let's say you're working on a project with somebody in an office, that's, that's one little example of that. But when you're actually in a deep relationship with someone, let's say like a marriage, right? <laughs> and you're working through, how is this gonna work out? To be able to look at another person and say, you know, not my way, let's do your way. That's a little harder. But the person who's experienced Christ's love in their life, now they have the power to move towards somebody in Christ-like way, in a cross-shaped way. Love is not irritable or resentful. I love that word, resentful. Biblical love doesn't hold grudges. It's very quick to forgive. And we need this as a church, right? We're going through stuff right now as a church and in the larger body of a church. Some of you have received emails about some of the conflicts, not here at Park South Loop, but within the body of Park Community Church. There's some ways that it would be easy at times to hold grudges when hard stuff happens in the life and the body of a church, right? To tally up the score And all of a sudden, someone's in your debt. Yeah, well, they made a mistake in the past. (laughs) No, we don't keep tallies. Praise God, Jesus has not kept a tally with us. He's washed it all away, hasn't he? And so, who are we to keep tallies with others? And then then we measure and we rank those who we're on good terms with and those we're not. No, 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 Christians are quick to forgive and wash it away. Now, I want you to think for a second, before I even go on from this one, who have you been keeping a tally with who there's a little bit of bitterness growing in your heart towards that person. That's the person right now that before the day is over, you need to give a phone call. Isn't that, isn't that hard? Christ-like love. Christ-like love is a verb. It moves towards people. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Well, wrestle with that one for a little bit. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. And then how would I finish that sentence? I'd probably finish it with something like, but rejoices in doing things rightly or uh, following God's law. He finishes it with, but rejoices in the truth. For a post-truth culture that we're living in today, that's a very important verse, right? Because we live in a culture where we don't, we don't want truth. All of a sudden we're looking out and the things we once thought were up are being called down and the things we once thought were down are being called up. And, and all over the place we're seeing wrongdoing, right? And I could get real specific here. We could just go through the political agenda of the day and we could start listing off one thing after another. The tax structure, right? right? You want to talk about a controversial topic, right? The tax structure of taking one people's money and then giving it broadly to a whole bunch of other people. Is that actually biblical, right? We could, we could talk about the right to life. We could talk about all the different policies that we argue about politics. Well, where do they start with? They start with understanding God's word and how has God organized the world, the world and what are his laws. Now, here's the thing. When a Christian sees wrongdoing, love is recognizing the wrongdoing. Love does not just see wrongdoing and then stand passively by, but it also rejoices in truth. So then when we see it done rightly, we lift it up as the example to follow so that others can see. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's this endless pursuit of loving others, enduring all things. You know, it's interesting. I heard someone uh, give a quote. I had to look this up. Someone said that the divorce rates among Christians are the same as non-Christians in this country. And so I did some homework, and I found out that's an absolute lie. Nothing could be further from the truth. The divorce rates of those who take the title Christian but have no real Christian ethic in their life, who don't come to church, they're not plugged in, they're not serving, they're not financially giving sacrificially towards the movement, they're not studying their Bible and praying, the divorce rates of those people and non-believers are the same. But you look at a follower of Jesus 
And a Christian couple who's in the word, who's in prayer, who's part of a healthy church, the divorce rates go through the floor. Why? Because when you open up pathways in your life for the Holy Spirit to flow in a marriage, in a relationship, what happens is all of a sudden you are able to endure all things. You're able to bear all things. You're able to hope all things. You're able to get to a really hard spot and hope that God has a better plan than this to end, end in what you see in front of you. But actually that God might be using this to form something new in you. See, in actual, in the real world, this is how Christians live. This is the ethic that comes out of us. Now when we consider these descriptions of love, it's apparent that all of us have failed to live up. Every single one of us, what should be happening is there should be some kind of confession taking place as you read this text thinking, I I haven't lived up. And the reality is that only Christ has lived up to this. Him alone, it's only Jesus. This is our hope, it's Christ alone. 1 John 4, 9 to 11. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God's, so here's the love of God made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is, this is this passage. Christ has moved towards you first when you were incapable of living this out. Isn't that remarkable? No one came to Jesus on their own. No one, no one said, I'm gonna be a more loving person. I'm gonna start to get my life together. I'm gonna do it the way God had it. And then we came to God and knocked on his door and, and, and God was like, good, you're doing it. Welcome in. No, actually, when we were enemies of Christ, when we were incapable of living this out in the true way, why, why couldn't we live it out in the true way? It's interesting. When you read some of these descriptions, even non-believers will live out a lot of these. We'll agree that love is patient with a lot of non-believers in the world. I've, I've been loved extraordinarily in my life by folks who don't know Jesus. But, but the scriptures say that in order to do this fully, in order to do this fully, in the way that God delights in, the ego has to be removed in such a way that God is at the center of it and it's motivated and ended with the love of God. And then that's biblical love because it's pushing others towards God. And the only way for that to happen in your life is if Christ first gets a hold of you because he will, he will exemplify for you and set the standard for what it looks like. Why? Because he's had patience with you. Even after forgiving you of all your sin on the cross, we still mess up. We still don't live this perfectly. And God's not counting us, keeping a tally with us. We don't have to go to confession every week in order to have those sins forgiven. No, it's all been done without the debt and he's not resenting us. He loves us fully despite ongoing sin. Isn't that the best news you've ever had? God God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to the cross for you. This is his love. Christ-like love. Christ pouring out his blood for you on the cross. Going all the way to death. Talk about being burned at the stake. He was burned at the stake for you. For you. An enemy of God. Someone who is a rebel to him who wasn't living this out. He didn't die for someone who loved him. He died for someone who was an enemy to him. And then he granted the free gift of salvation, a free gift of love towards you, free of charge. He counts all your sins paid for in full. And then for the rest of your life, he continues to forgive you and extend love to you. Doesn't hold a grudge against you. He's patient with you. He lets you go your own way a little bit in order to course correct you. This is the God we serve. And then he says, this is true love. Now the way Christ has loved you, live it out before others. The character of biblical love is in the shape of the cross. Now lastly, in just a few minutes here, the supremacy of biblical love. The supremacy of biblical love. When Christ returns, the spiritual gifts will cease, 
but the love we share will last for eternity. Let me read it again. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, when I was making a comparison, now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when Christ returns face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's a beautiful line. Even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians is the great chapter in the scriptures on the resurrection. We're getting there in two weeks, okay? So I'm not gonna steal all my thunder for those sermons today on the resurrection and everything that's gonna happen when Christ returns. But we have to go just a little bit right now to get the beauty of what he's saying. Love will last into eternity. Now, what am I not saying? There's an Eastern way of thinking, and Eastern, what I mean by that is kind of like Eastern religion way of thinking. And when they think of the world and eternity, what they think of is they think of our individual lives as water drops. And when we die, our water drop merges into the ocean and we lose our individuality and we kind of wave with the cosmos, if you will, with oneness for all eternity in this merged sense of salvation. And that's the furthest thing from what's gonna happen after you die than you could possibly get after. You will continue to live for all eternity. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus will live with Christ, as the text says, face to face. There's no more faith that's needed in the way we have faith now. Why? Well, because faith now is, is living in light of the reality of Jesus as Lord without seeing him face to face. We believe by faith the promises of God, even though we don't see Christ ruling and reigning with our eyes, but we know he is right now. Those who do not believe that Jesus is Lord will live for all eternity in hell, a place where they will not see Jesus face to face, nor will any of the presence of Christ be in their vicinity. It'll be a Christless eternity. Now he says this. He says the spiritual gifts in this life will cease. Between the resurrection and Christ's return, and by the way, when Christ returns, we'll have an individual life for all eternity, right? When, between, then and, between Christ's return and the resurrection, we have these things called spiritual gifts. He has gifted the church with a wide variety and diversity of gifts. Each of you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have unique personality, gifts, ways of your life that are vital in the life of the church. But did you know that when Christ returns, those gifts aren't gonna be needed? Why? We won't need the gift of prophecy anymore. Why not? What is prophecy? Prophecy is, is speaking truth into someone's life that, that's coming from God, directing them into a path they ought to go. Well, why won't we need that anymore? Well, when we see Christ face to face, when we're in his vicinity, We'll have Christ directing our steps in a direct way, more direct than we have it now. We'll still be living lives, beautiful lives of, in community, beautiful lives of sharing fellowship and, and the way life was supposed to be lived on this earth, by the way, the renewed earth. We'll get there in chapter 15. But we won't need the gift of prophecy anymore. We, we, we won't need all the gifts. Why? Because those are only shadows of the full thing when Christ returns and we see him face to face. When Christ returns, the skies will be rolled back like a scroll and this temporary age will be put to end. And what's gonna last? Your souls will last in the glorified bodies that God gives you in your, if you're in Christ Jesus and you will continue to love each other for all eternity. The gifts will cease 
but you'll, your love and, and the habits you developed of pouring yourself out into people's lives, of verbing other people, right? Stepping towards them in action. You'll continue to love them in all eternity the way you started loving them now. So let's get busy with heaven's work while we still got time here. How about that? You see that? Do you see that? If you're going to live a life worth something, that's not just a hollow shell of I know a bunch of stuff and I got a gift and look how good I am. If you're not gonna be a shell, but you're gonna have substance to you, you're gonna be a, a man or a woman worth following, truly, that's gonna lead others in the power of the gospel. Major on the majors. And the majors are that which last for all eternity. Christ rule and reign, he is Lord, and the love that you exhibit towards others. You wanna get after hard work? You wanna stretch yourself this year? Learn how to sacrifice the way Jesus did towards another person. Find a way, let me give you some applications here. Do not be passive in your love of others. Let me give you two applications. If you are waiting for opportunities to come your way, you're getting it wrong. Jesus didn't wait for opportunities to come his way. He stepped into people's lives he, he encountered them. He went to them. He saw brokenness and he moved in, right? He stepped into hardship and, he, and, he, and, he, and he, he spoke with people. He cared for people. We cannot be passive. Christians have played the passive game for multiple generations at this point and it hasn't gone well for us. We've been too, we've been too long passive. And now, the time is now for Christians to get very bold in their love and, and to put this into, into action like Jesus not to be Jesus, but to be like Jesus and to step into others' lives who are far from Christ or other Christians' lives who need a little love and to step sacrificially, to bleed a little for the gospel. It should make you uncomfortable. It should take your Saturday morning when you really didn't want to give up a Saturday morning, right? And if you can't do that, what's gotten into us? We can't be passive with this. But number two, second application, may we not leave here today without taking stock of our own lives. May we, may we not leave here today without asking ourselves the hard question. It's one thing to read a beautiful passage and say, I, I assent to that with my knowledge. It's true. It's another thing to ask the question, am I patient with those who are hard to be patient with? It's another thing to say, am I, am I being resentful? And then when the Lord reveals in you that actually you have, you have been resentful to somebody, to go before a holy God who has not kept Kept, kept, kept your list of wrongdoings once you believed in Jesus. And to go before that holy God and say, God, I don't want to be like that anymore. That, that's the flesh in me. Right? It's, it's another thing to measure yourself according to Christ-like love. Jesus taught us this, and let me close on this. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How, Jesus? How are they going to know that we're your disciples? if you have love for one another. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we, uh, we do ask that you form this in us right now. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do a work right now in this room. Even before we finish this service, we're gonna take communion, we're gonna sing a few more songs. And before we leave here today, that you would have your way with us and reveal in us where we are not living up and we are failing to live in accordance with your design for love. Teach us to be like Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel that has forgiven us of so much. Thank you that when we were enemies of the cross, you moved towards us. 
Jesus, equip us to be bold in our faith. I am convinced the time is now for the city to see the church on fire for the gospel, to live it out among those who are waiting to see true love, who are hungry for it. There's so much brokenness, Christ. Empower us with a Christ-like ambition to love others boldly in Jesus' name. I pray for help. Amen.